Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. From the small towns to the big cities, we bring you the stories that matter. This is, this is, this is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. Today, we bring you the story of how Spanish law saved women from their husbands gambling away their homes. Also, we bring you the story of why Andrew Jackson's pet parrot had to be removed from his funeral. And finally, we bring you the story of the DiMaggio's, three brothers, their passion for baseball, and their pursuit of the American dream. 
And we can't wait to bring you these fantastic stories from our team. They work hard day in, day out to bring you stories from the people that you often don't get to hear from or about, but from people we think you should hear from. And we do all this for you, and that is any of you who think this is a good and great country, and any of you who are looking for a place to go where there aren't debates and anger and vitriol, a peaceful place to go, a place to, in the end, get refreshed. If you'd like to support our work, support us and all that we're doing here, and by the way, we're a nonprofit, visit Our American Stories and go to the Donate tab and give what you can. Join our team in the work we do and become a part of the Our American Stories family. We appreciate both one-time gifts and monthly donations. It's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And now Faith brings us Dr. Gene Stunts to give us some history on what it was like before women could own property or make money of their own. If you have traveled much to Europe or any other country outside the U.S., you will see history dates from times like the 12th and 13th century. And it soon becomes clear that America is actually a quite young country in comparison. With that being said, we owe much of our jurisprudence, that is, our law systems, to other countries and the people that came from them to the U.S. While the U.S. adopted English common law when becoming its own country, Texas was a bit different when they became a state because of the Spanish influence they had. Two of the laws that the Spanish brought over to Texas greatly impacted women's rights and freedoms. There was a time, unfortunately, not terribly long ago in our history that women could not own property or have any money of their own. If their husband had debts to pay or owed taxes, the family's home could be seized and taken, leaving the wife and children homeless and helpless. To keep this from happening, the Spanish had brought with them their homestead exemption laws. To help us unpack this long history of homestead laws, we have Dr. Jean Stunts, a professor at West Texas A&M University. It starts back in Spain at the fall of the Roman Empire. There were Visigoths who had come down from the Germany area and settled in the Iberian Peninsula during the Roman Empire. And these were Christian because, of course, the Roman Empire was officially Christian. Then when the Roman Empire fell, these Visigoths were left pretty much unprotected and they splintered into very small little sort of kingdoms all over the place. In the year 711, Muslims from northern Africa invaded Spain, going through the Rock of Gibraltar, and very quickly conquered all of these little scattered kingdoms because they couldn't work together to prevent it. And the Muslims went all the way up through uh, Spain, they crossed the Pyrenees and went into France before they were finally stopped. So that was in the year 711. Well, the people living in Spain who were still Christian wanted to take their country back. Well, these guys in Spain would go out and raid the nearest Muslim settlement for women, for jewels, whatever they could find. Gradually, the Christians took over more and more territory until we get to the time of Ferdinand and Isabella when they completely conquer all of the Iberian peninsulas and push the Muslims out. Now, during this time, this seven centuries or so, is when the Spanish legal system developed. And there were towns in Spain, and people lived in towns. They didn't really live out in the countryside. And so you had more artisans and craftspeople there 
than you might have in other parts of Europe where everybody just made everything themselves. So in Spain, there developed this law, this tradition, that if a man was in debt, you could not take away the tools of his trade. That is, if he was a blacksmith, you could not take his anvil and hammer uh, to pay the taxes, because then how could he raise the money to pay you? How could he survive with his family if you took away the tools of his trade? This became set in stone in Spanish law that no matter how much a man owed, you could not take his home, you could not take the tools of his trade, because to do that would be a ruination for his family, uh, that you would have to find some other way for him to pay his debt. And so that's in Spain. And then we know that Columbus came over to the New World and discovered all the people living here already. Uh, and the Spanish gradually moved northward from Mexico and into Texas. And so for the first hundred or so years of when we have documentation of life in Texas, it was Spanish. And this homestead exemption, as the English-speaking people called it, was recognized as something that worked pretty well. And since a lot of the Anglos coming into Texas had left behind a lot of debts uh, back where they came from, they really liked the fact that their land and their cattle and their tools of their trade could not be taken from them to pay their debts. And so when Texas became a republic, and again when it became a state, they adopted this homestead exemption as rule of law in Texas. And this lasted up until the 20th century, late 20th century, uh, when it was modified by the Texas legislature. If the homestead exemption had not been put in place, and then what happened in the rest of what became the United States, uh, if a man got into too much debt, his land could be seized, his house could be seized, all of his property could be seized, and the family would be turned out penniless, homeless. And this affected women because married women were not allowed to own their own property uh, under the English common law that the rest of the United States adopted. If a man gambled away his money, it was the women and children who suffered. Uh, they would be turned out of their houses. And of course, women in those days had very little ways of earning money to support themselves. And so the families would fall on desperate times indeed. The other law that Texas had from the Spanish was community property law. This is that whenever there's a husband and wife, anything that is gained in the marriage is split equally between them. And this comes from Spain, because again, with all that sporadic fighting that was going on during those centuries, it became very important for women to have the ability to take care of themselves. And especially as the uh, Christian Spanish slowly took over more and more land, they had to uh, get women to come settle in the new towns that they created. And this was a dangerous area. There was still fighting going on. And so they had to offer the women more and more to get them to move into this dangerous area. So they offered things like, well, if you move to this town, we're going to give women, even married women, the right to own their own bakeries. And the money that they make with their bakeries will belong to them and not their husbands. And so some women said, you know, that makes it worthwhile to move to a dangerous area. And so things like this happened, and women gained more and more rights throughout this reconquest of Spain. And so they also developed the community property system, where, as I said, anything that is gained during the marriage belongs to the husband and wife equally. In the rest of Europe, everything belonged to the husband. 
The wife owned nothing. She had no legal identity. She could not make a contract, so she couldn't own a business. Uh, she couldn't work for anyone because the husband would own her wages. Even women committing crimes, it was the husband who was punished. So that was in the rest of Europe, but in Spain, women had their own rights and responsibilities. And again, this came to Texas, uh, when the Spanish came to Texas. And it was such a good system for living on a frontier that the Texas legislature kind of thought, you know, maybe we like this. And so during the Republic, even though they said in law that they adopted the English common law, people were saying, no, no, the women still have the right to this property. And what is really fun for a historian, not probably for anybody else, but when I was reading the minutes of the Constitutional Convention that would allow Texas to join the United States in 1845, a lot of these delegates were worried about the debts they had left behind in Georgia and Alabama and so forth when they moved to Texas, because Texas was a different country. So the people they owed money to could not touch them in Texas. And so in Texas, they had been given all these huge tracts of land and they were, you know, flourishing and they did not want those people back in Alabama and Georgia to be able to come take their land to pay off their debts. So there was a lot of hesitation about joining the United States because of this, that they did not want to lose their land. But there was a lawyer and he became Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court named Hemphill. And he had studied Spanish law, and he was at the convention. And so he made this speech, and he says, you know, if we adopt community property law, like Spain had, then they cannot take your land because half of it belongs to your wife and not to you. And so this hushed silence sort of fell over this convention of men who were anxious to keep hold of their own property. And they said, you know, that might work. And so they adopted the community property system to keep their land from going to their creditors. They didn't really care about giving women extra rights or anything because this was the 1840s and they didn't expect women to have any rights. But if they adopted this community property system, then their creditors could not take their land. And so when Texas joined the United States in 1845, it was with community property firmly in place. Homestead exemption and community property laws vary state to state. And the laws originally brought to Texas from the Spanish have been modified in different ways. Although the male lawmakers at the time were not too concerned about women's rights, we can see that these laws in particular greatly impacted women for years to come. And for that, we can thank the Texans. And a special thanks to Dr. Jean Stunts, from West Texas A&M University, who gave us the history and the story behind the story of where that law came from. And of course, Spanish law, not the rest of Europe. It was Spanish law. Homestead laws and community property equals women's rights. And a thanks to the folks at Hillsdale College for supporting stories like these. And by the way, Hillsdale is a remarkable place to send your children, your, your young adults to school But if they can't get to Hillsdale, or if you went to college but don't think you learned what you needed to learn about your country and about all the good and beautiful things that matter in life, go to Hillsdale's free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. There's such a remarkable array of things to watch, things to learn, 
Again, hillsdale.edu is where you go. The courses are free, and they're terrific. Up next, Joey brings us Mark Cheatham with the story of Andrew Jackson's swearing parrot. When I was a docent at the Hermitage the summer between my junior and senior years of college, one of my favorite stories to tell was that of Paul the Parrot. I never questioned its validity at the time, but several years ago I decided to check on this story and see, was it actually true? Marsha Mullen, the authority on all things Andrew Jackson at the Hermitage, directed me to Reverend William Menifee Normant's Recollections, which are in Volume 3 of Samuel G. High School's book, Andrew Jackson and Early Tennessee History. In speaking about Jackson's 1845 funeral, Normant recorded, Before the sermon, and while the crowd was gathering, a wicked parrot that was a household pet got excited and commenced swearing so loud and long as to disturb the people and had to be carried from the house. It's a great anecdote, and it's one I've told many times over the years, but the story became even more interesting for me because Norman was a graduate of Cumberland University, where I currently teach. He was one of a group of Cumberland University students who visited Jackson shortly before the former president died in June of 1845. According to one Norman obituary, there are few, if any, people living today who saw General Andrew Jackson in the flesh. Since the death of Judge Nathan Green of Lebanon, Tennessee a few years ago, Reverend Normant is the only survivor of that little group of students of Cumberland University that in the spring of 1845 visited Old Hickory at his famous country home, the Hermitage, 15 miles from Nashville. Here Reverend Normant described their visit. Cumberland University is at Lebanon, about 15 miles from the Hermitage. In the early spring of 1845, six of us Cumberland students decided we wished to meet General Jackson. One Saturday morning, we packed our lunches and got in the stagecoach, which went near the Hermitage on the way to Nashville. When we arrived, Andrew Jackson Donaldson, nephew of the general, met us and conducted us to the big east room where the general was sitting before the fire. It was a wood fire and huge logs were burning. The fireplace was about five feet high. Mr. Donaldson introduced us to the general as courteously as though we were distinguished guests, and without rising, the hero of New Orleans shook hands. At once, we saw that the famous man was very feeble. After this introduction, we all sat around the fire. The general puffed occasionally at a short-stemmed silver pipe, which he held in his left hand. In his right hand, he held a long hickory cane. A Bible lay on the floor beside him. The general was very religious at this time, and when we told him who we were, some of us studying for the ministry, he leaned forward with his chin on his stick and exclaimed, A noble calling, young gentleman. He then advised us to make the most of our opportunities and become upright citizens. To tell the truth, we were rather disappointed because he did not tell us of battles and duels. Could this gentle religious old gentleman be the man whose by the eternal had sounded in the halls of Congress on the field of battle and dueling ground? Yet we sat looking at the living reality of our boyish dreams, an old man feeble and lonely, who spoke of his wife as that sainted woman, and whose grave he daily visited. 
Up above the mantelpiece hung two long dueling pistols, mute witnesses of days gone by. And I think these pistols occupied most of our attention. We spent more than an hour talking with the general, and when we were ready to leave, he again shook hands and wished us happiness and health. Norman's obituary went on to report. While still at school, word reached Cumberland University that General Jackson was dead. Only six weeks before, he had shaken his hand. Reverend Norman says he went to the funeral and that the general's parrot, excited by the multitude and the wailing of the slaves, let loose perfect gusts of cuss words. The slaves of the general were horrified and awed at the bird's lack of reverence. The last quotation from this obituary is interesting for more than just Paul swearing. Normans claimed that the enslaved people's wailing set off Paul's blue streak and that they were horrified and awed by the parrot's lack of reverence presents a view of enslaved people as being more pious than their southern slave owners. That's an interesting perspective, but it isn't surprising. White views of African Americans were complicated during and after slavery. Mark Smith's book, How Race is Made, Slavery, Segregation, and the Senses, offers the simple yet powerful argument that Southern whites viewed African Americans as dirty and loathsome at the same time that they allowed them in their homes as servants and nannies, or, in the case of some white masters and enslaved women, as they raped them. The same dichotomy holds true for African-American morality and religion. Whites believed enslaved people practiced a heathen African religion, not religions, mind you, yet they also thought enslaved people often possessed a spirituality that gave them greater moral insight and wisdom than their white Christian masters. In the case of Jackson's funeral, the perception is that members of the Hermitage's enslaved community were appalled by Paul's language which she presumably learned from Old Hickory or other whites on the plantation because they were too moral to have used that language themselves. Of course, this interpretation ignores the agency of enslaved African Americans and the complexity of their religious beliefs and practices. It also overlooks the reality that the enslaved people at the funeral might have been mourning the uncertainty they faced. But those enslaved at the Hermitage needed only to look at his son to see how things could get worse. Andrew Jackson Jr. struggled with alcoholism, and unlike his father, he was a terrible money manager. The prospect of Jr. taking over may have been enough to produce the wailing that Normant and others heard that spring day in 1845. If that was the reason for the enslaved people's sorrow, they were right to worry. Over the next 11 years, Jr. not only sold off the hermitage piece by piece, but he also sold many of them as well. And great job, as always, to Joey. And a thanks, a special thanks, to Cumberland University history professor Mark Cheatham telling us the story of Andrew Jackson's cursing parrot, but also about so much more. Imagine meeting a president under those circumstances and to hear the reading of a memoir and to get back into the mind and time of the day we love bringing people back in history. And what we also do is try not to judge people out of their context, out of their historical context, because, well, we wouldn't be too kind of people to do it 100 years from now to us. And if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and share 
our podcast with friends and coworkers. And finally, Greg brings us Tom Clavin to share us some great stories about Jolton Joe, Tom, and Vince DiMaggio. The DiMaggio's is about family. That's the reason why I wrote the book. It's dedicated to my own family. I had actually turned down the opportunity to write the DiMaggio's twice. I was not interested. I thought that uh, Richard Ben Kramer had done the book on the DiMaggio's uh, because of his biography of Joe DiMaggio and a hero's life. I'm not a big fan of that book, but I figured it would be pretty thorough and what else could I do? And the third time that my agent suggested that I do a book on the DiMaggio's, all three brothers, I agreed to look into it, mostly just so I could get him off my back and he could stop suggesting that. And uh, I started to do some research. I mean, like most people, I maybe didn't even know there were two other DiMaggio brothers, or I knew that there was Dominic in Boston. But I didn't know about Vince at all. And it is kind of remarkable that you had three brothers playing at the same time. Not unheard of. I mean, we know about the Alou brothers, for example, and we had other brothers who played at the same time. With the DiMaggio's, my first stop was, after doing some initial research, is I made an appointment with Dominic DiMaggio Jr. and went up to see him. He had taken over his father's factory manufacturing business uh, in the Boston area. And uh, I went up to see him and sp- spent the day with him talking about his father. And I came away realizing that, and many writers would not want to say something like this, my agent was right. There was a terrific story here, and it went way beyond Joe DiMaggio, uh, which I was very glad for, because even though I was born and raised a Yankees fan, my father's favorite player was Joe DiMaggio. Again, a Joe DiMaggio biography didn't interest me. So I wrote a book that really is from the viewpoint of family. Uh, Giuseppe and Rosalie coming over from Italy, uh, barely could speak English, becoming a fisherman in the San Francisco area, raising nine children, uh, the last three of whom were Vincent DiMaggio, Joe DiMaggio, and the baby Dominic DiMaggio. And those are the three that became baseball players. They weren't carbon copies of each other. They all three loved baseball. It's interesting that the Giuseppe and Rosalie had had six children, and then they had uh, Vincent. And Vincent was passionate about baseball, and he was talented. And he, the father Giuseppe forbade his children to play baseball. And uh, and so when Joe was a teenager, he couldn't play, or he would have to play in secret. When Dominic was very young, he couldn't play, or the mother would sometimes cover for them. But Vincent was very blatant about it. He wanted to play baseball. That's what he wanted to do with his life. And when Giuseppe kept being obstinate about it, what Vincent did is he ran away. Some kids run away and join the circus. Vincent ran away to join a baseball team. And he started playing in leagues up and down the uh, up and down California, up and down the West Coast, into Oregon and Washington. Uh, eventually made it to the Pacific Coast League, which was almost a major league caliber. Uh, one of the enjoyments for me of writing the book, The DiMaggio's, was that all three brothers uh, played first in the Pacific Coast League before going on to the major leagues. Anyway, Vincent went off to play baseball, and he was gone for about two years, and he came back to the family home in the San Francisco area. And uh, his father basically had his arms crossed and said, so you come back, you probably have no money, and 
you've been a big failure, and now you're ready to be a fisherman just like your father, just like your brothers, well, two of the brothers anyway. And instead, Vincent reached into his pocket and put something like uh, you know $6,000 cash on the table. He said, that's what I earned playing baseball. And Giuseppe took a look at that, and he went to Joe, and he said, what are you going to start playing baseball? Well, Joe was ready, willing, and able to jump right in. And he also started playing for local teams and for the Pacific Coast League. And he quickly outdistanced Vincent. Now, we should really give credit to Vincent here because he had the courage to follow his dream. And it was because of that the door got cracked open for Joe DiMaggio. If it had not been for Vincent, we would ne- might never know Joe DiMaggio, a Hall of Fame player, winner of nine World Series titles. So Joe started to play in the Pacific Coast League, and it was in the Pacific Coast League that he had a 61-game hitting streak. I mean, we know about the longer, the, the long hitting streak he had in Major League Baseball, but he had his longest one of his career was in the Pacific Coast League. Meanwhile, Vince does get called up to the Major Leagues. Uh, I believe his first team he played for was the Pittsburgh Pirates. He eventually played for the Philadelphia Phillies. But it was with the Pirates that he had a couple of all-star seasons. He was a very good defensive outfielder, probably during his years in the National League, the best center fielder in the National League. And he was a pretty decent hitter, and he made the all-star team in a couple of years. Uh, Joe came up with the Yankees in 1936, was his rookie season. And he and DiMaggio were on great Yankee teams that won the pennant in 36, 37, 38, 39. You know, four straight pennants, four straight World Series, as it turned out, too. So Joe right away got used to winning, and he was an all-star every year. And then what about Dominic DiMaggio, the youngest one? He was called, also nicknamed the professor. He had these thick glasses. Nobody thought of him as a baseball player. He had to really go against a lot of stereotypes to eventually work his way through the Pacific Coast League. And then into Major League Baseball, where he was signed by the... The Yankees had a chance to sign him, and they passed. They didn't think he was... You know, anything like his brother. And he was not Joe DiMaggio, but he was Dominic DiMaggio, and he was a darn good ball player, and I happen to think uh, should have been given more consideration for the Hall of Fame. But he was taken by the Boston Red Sox, and he had uh, uh, nine all-star seasons. He played 13 seasons, uh, played from about 1940 to 53, uh, 52, I think. And he made the all-star team nine, uh, seven times, excuse me, Uh, Joe had made the All-Star team 13 times and Vincent twice, so he had the three brothers. Between the three of them made 22 All-Star teams. That's a remarkable level of achievement for any family. And their careers took different paths. Now, in Vincent's case, uh, by the time World War II ended, he was done with baseball. Uh, He still played. He just kept playing in less accomplished and smaller leagues and eventually ended up back on the on the west coast and he had a troubled post-baseball career uh you know, alcoholism uh couldn't was having a hard time holding a job so he's also kind of like a story of the american dream like the dimaggio family was that his his dream was to play baseball and he accomplished it it was outside of baseball that he had trouble you know dealing with life Joe, as we know, was a great leader of the Yankees. He did miss three seasons because of World War II. Uh, I discuss in the book some of the controversy about that because he had to be sort of dragged, kicking and screaming into the military service. But he's a guy who was about to make $100,000. Instead, he's making $240 a month being in the Army. Uh, When he got out of the service when World War II ended, 
the Yankees again won the pennant in 47, uh, 49, 50, 51. Uh, Joe with diminishing skills. And then uh, he retired after the 51 season. Uh, by, th- by this time, Mickey Mantle was on the Yankees, and a, a, a new era uh, began for the Yankees. Joe had a pretty uh, famous post-baseball career. He was always introduced as the greatest living ball player, much to the uh, detriment and sort of amusement of Ted Williams. When you look at their respective statistics, Ted Williams far outdistanced Joe DiMaggio. He just didn't have nine World Series titles. Joe and Dominic were very close brothers. They really loved each other. They were also very fierce competitors, and it didn't help that they were both considered the best set of fielders in the American League. In the case of uh, how they loved each other, I think one example is the 1941 season. It also shows that Ted Williams cared so much for Dominic and for Joe too, even though they were very much rivals. But in the uh, in 1941 season, Joe was doing his 56-game hitting streak, and out in the outfield, uh, when they were at Fenway Park, you had Ted Williams in left and Dominic in center. And usually, in those days, games were played you know, in the daytime, and it was hard for finding out uh, you know, what was going on in the game that was being played at the exact same time. So Ted uh, basically bribed the scorekeeper, who was behind the, the, the green wall in, in, in Fenway Park, to uh, listen to radio or some kind of way to get information from the New York game. And whenever Joe got a hit, he would yell it out to Ted, who in turn would yell it over to Dominic in center field. And Dominic paid attention very fiercely to every moment that that he could get his hands on of the Joe DiMaggio hitting streak. I think one way that they were competitors is that uh, one illustration of this In 1948, the Yankees, the Indians, and the Red Sox are all competing for the American League pennant. The Red Sox had won it in 46, the Yankees had won it in 47, and now you had these upstart Cleveland Indians. And as it happened, uh, Dominic had been dating a woman named Emily, and they had made plans to marry, and they uh, planned to get married in October 1948. And uh, Joe DiMaggio calls his mother, and his mother is expressing some concern that uh, what happens if the Red Sox win the pennant and Dominic won't be able to get married when he's supposed to. And Joe says, don't worry, Mom, I'll, t- I'll personally take care of it make sure Dominic's available for his wedding. And sure enough, on the last weekend of the season, Joe demolishes uh, the, the Red Sox and the Cleveland Indians win the pennant and um, Dominic is sent home in time to get married with, of course, Joe as his best man. I think another good example of their competitiveness is that in 1949, uh, Dominic had a hitting streak of his own going on. I mean, he, he ended up, of all, of all the people in all of baseball, Joe's own brother is the one coming the closest to his 56-game hitting streak. And it's up to 37 games, so Dominic only has another 19 games to go. He'll at least tie his brother. And uh, they're actually, the Yankees are playing the Red Sox of all places, of all teams. And uh, Dominic is, is 0 for 3, and he gets up again. It's going to be his last, unless there's an amazing comeback, it's going to be his last at bat of the game. And he sends a screamer to the left center field gap. And in a brilliant play, who chases it down but Joe DiMaggio robbing his brother of a base hit and breaking his brother's 50, 37 game hitting streak. 
they used to keep score too. I, I should mention this how many times one robbed a hit from the other. And by the end of their careers, Dominic actually, by an easy margin, had outscored his brother Joe and who, who, who stole a hit from the other one by their play in center field. So they loved each other very much, and they did. It was a lifelong thing. The biggest claim to fame for Joe after his career as a baseball player was marrying Marilyn Monroe. That marriage lasted only nine months. And um, there's, I think, uh, information in my book about the Joe-Marilyn relationship that you won't find other places. And a big reason for that is because I had access to members of the DiMaggio family. There are quite a few of them did not participate in the Richard Ben Kramer, Joe DiMaggio biography, I think because they got and I, a sense from him that it was going to be rather critical. Uh, my book is not pro-DiMaggio, anti-DiMaggio. It's the story about the family. Even to the point where... Dominic and Emily, his wife, they really liked Marilyn Monroe. They thought she was a wonderful girl. They thought she and Joe were wrong for each other, but they could see that they were in love, and, and they were fully supportive of Joe getting married to Marilyn if that's what he wanted. Now, we know that the marriage lasted only nine months, I think in 1954, and they broke up and went their separate ways, but apparently they still had a strong attraction to each other because what most people don't know, and uh, I learned this from Emily DiMaggio, who, again, is the only one of that generation still alive. She's in her 90s now. That, uh, that Marilyn and Joe used to have these secret rendezvous up at Dominic and Emily's place up in, in, uh, in the Boston area in Massachusetts. This was in the 1950s. And every so often, somebody would somebody from the press would wonder, uh, was that a DiMaggio sighting? And they would stake out the Dominic-Emily uh, house in, in the Boston area. So sometimes they would have to, Dominic would get into, disguise this Joe, would get into Joe's car and drive it around a little while. Meanwhile, Emily would and would get a cab for Joe and Marilyn to take them to the train station so they could head back to New York. Uh, that went on until Marilyn met Arthur Miller, and then it, the, all the hanky-panky with Joe ended, as far as we know. Uh, so Joe had uh, already a failed marriage, and as his life went on, he became more and more disenchanted with his fame, uh, it seemed, with life in general. He had a very difficult relationship with his only child, Joe DiMaggio Jr. You can imagine what that was like for... For him, being Joe DiMaggio Jr. and always being compared to his father, he tried and did not become a baseball player. He did become a join the Marine Corps, but he also drifted a lot. He was more like his brother Vince; uh, couldn't quite uh, uh, get traction on the rest of his life. And when Joe died, it was a national headlines all over the place, of course, because he was an icon. You know, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? He was in songs. Uh, he was lionized in the press. He, he always got good press, even though in a lot of ways he couldn't stand the press. But what about Dominic? Now, in the case of Dominic DiMaggio, I believe it's fair for me to say that I did not start this book with the idea that he would become really more the central character or, or coming out of the book as my sort of hero. But what happened was, I think, as I got to know Dominic from talking to his children, and thankfully, his widow was still alive. Uh, she was 90-ish. But I was able to visit with her several times, have many conversations with her. She was the keeper of the DiMaggio family history. She was the only one of the nine DiMaggio children and their spouses. She was the only one of that generation still alive. She had married Dominic in 1948, so she was there while Dominic was still at the prime of his career. Dominic joined the Red Sox in 1940. He also missed three seasons uh, because he was in the, in the Navy. 
And um, after World War II, he came back and he was just getting into his prime, unlike his brothers Joe and Vincent, who were starting to get past their prime after the war. He was just getting into his prime as a ball player. I mean, the Red Sox had great teams in the mid to late 40s. Uh, you know, you had, you had Dominic DiMaggio, who was considered a better center fielder than his brother. Uh, he was not a power hitter like his brother. He was usually batting in the first or second spot, followed by people like Johnny Pesky and Bobby Doerr. Uh, Vern Stevens, um, Jimmy Fox. There were a lot of really good Red Sox players alongside Dominic. Dominic, right from the beginning after his marriage, emphasized family. That was what was most important to him. He loved baseball, but he always made sure that at the end, after every game, he got came home, came home to his family. He and his wife had three children. Um, uh, Dominic and Peter were the boys, uh, and Emily Jr. was the girl. And uh, when Dominic, when it was time for him, when the writing was on the wall and his career was winding down, he walked away. And he, be, he bought a manufacturing company and became an extremely successful businessman. And to me, that's an important part of the book, too, is the post-baseball career of Dominic DiMaggio. Because... He knew he was always going to be in the shadow of his brother as a ball player, but he was not in the shadow of his brother as a man or as a family man, as a husband or a father. Uh, he became quite wealthy. He and his wife were very, very involved in charities, philanthropic work in the Boston area. He remained a legendary figure in Boston. And he lived until he was, uh, I believe, 92 when Dominic died surrounded by family and it's no coincidence that the very last word of the book is family that's what the book to me was about the DiMaggio's it was you know the subtitle is three brothers their passion for baseball their pursuit of the American dream I think it sums it up the subtitle because it was the, the family's pursuit of the American dream it was the passion of those three brothers for baseball and it was their their love and sometimes disturbing relationship with each other. Joe being the superhero, Vincent being viewed in a lot of ways as a failure. But Dominic, not the Hall of Favor, though I think he should have gotten more consideration, but probably most successful as a human being than, than the brothers because he had this long, enduring marriage of well over 60 years with his wife, the three children, his son takes over the manufacturing company, uh, his daughter becomes a, a, a writer, an accomplished person, as, as, Peter's other son becomes an accomplished person. And so I just found myself as I was writing the book more and more gravitating towards Dominic's story. And I think that if people want, even not baseball fans, I think that they would enjoy the book because it's really a story about the American dream and it's a story about family. And great job as always to Greg Hengler for bringing us this story and a special thanks to Tom Clavin. By the way, get his book, The DiMaggio's Three Brothers, Their Passion for Baseball and Their Pursuit of the American Dream. The father of these three boys comes to America from Italy, and he's a fisherman. He doesn't want them to play baseball. He wants them to do serious things with their life, get ahead. That's not why he crossed an ocean for boys to play games. But when the son, Vincent, comes back with money, my goodness, Joseph follows that pursuit. So does Dominic. All three of them become Excellent ball players. My goodness, nine all-stars for non nine all-star seasons for Dominic, 13 for Joe, two for Vince. That doesn't happen very often, folks, in life. But the heart of this story, well, Joe and Vincent, they put so much into the game and the fame, and in the end, not enough into their family. 
They didn't pour enough of their energy into their private life. And Dominic did. And he became, in the end, sort of the hero of the story because he lived a proper life. And the American dream, well, the pursuit of it without family is one heck of an empty experience. But with family, anything's possible. If you missed it, listen to our last podcast where we bring you the stories of Sacagawea, the 7-Eleven and Blockbuster CEO who grew up without running water, and how the kazoo came to be one of the only truly American instruments. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories podcast. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth no matter who you are. Mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com.